always good. Well, it's good to be with you. This day's been a long time coming, hasn't it? Uh, before I get going, I just want to say this has been a really exciting week. Um, to be in this, my first week here is the, the week of EBS, and to see this building coursing with life and energy, there are a few times I thought I was going to have to call John to put a few extra nails on the roof to keep it down, uh, but uh, uh, Alicia, where are you? I know you're somewhere, there you are, you and your team and Barb Hustle, you guys did a great job. Thank you so much for pouring into these children, pouring the truth of God's word into the lives of these kids. That's fantastic. I also want to tell you how grateful we are. Um, so there was a, a stock the pan free shower for Karen on Wednesday night. I was sitting at home and um, I was expecting Karen to drive home and have, you know, a trunk full of groceries that I could help her unpack. And... Uh, and before Karen got there, uh, the Laidlaws pulled up. They, I'm like, why are they backing into the driveway? <laughs> About halfway through unloading their car, I was going, this is ridiculous. There are so many wonderful things here. And then we finish unpacking the other half. My jaw is, you know, hanging on the floor. And then they say, and the other car is coming. <laughs> and then Eva Doors pulls up with a minivan. And there was even more in there. So we spent the last half of the week trying to find places for all these groceries that you, you have so generously given us. But uh, jesting aside, we, we've, we're humbled by it. You know, we, we don't feel like we deserve any of that. And uh, we've come here to serve God together with you, alongside you, to pour into you and to love you. And we're really grateful for what you've done for us. Um, I've told you that you're always welcome for a visit. Drop by. Um, if something's going on in our house that we can't have a visitor, uh, we won't feel bad saying no, but do, do uh, come by. We live on Eden Place, which if you're heading south on Mountain View, is right before you dip down into Hungry Hollow. There's a little Eden Place on the right, and we're number 15 on the left. So feel free to come by and visit, and uh, um, we'd love to share some of the good food you've given us back with you as you, as you do so. Um, <clears throat> I, I, have, I have two skateboard stories my whole life. I have two skateboard stories. And the first one I told you when I came here in view of a call. So the first time I preached in this church. And now the second time I'm preaching, I'm giving you my other skateboard stories. So after this, I'm out of them, all right? Um, I, was, uh, I was in fifth grade, or grade five, I guess I'm supposed to say. I was in grade five, and... Um, it was nearing Christmas, and all I wanted for Christmas was a designer skateboard. California design, custom built from the skate shack. And uh, so I had told my parents what I wanted, and my parents had said, <clears throat> well, wouldn't uh, a $20 skateboard from the local department store be just fine? And so I figured they were joking, and I played right along with it and, you know, insisted, no, 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 I need my designer skateboard. Christmas Day arose, er, arrived, and I went downstairs with my siblings and looked around at all the gifts under the tree, and I eyed only one present that looked like it could be a skateboard. 
And I remember thinking, that looks an awful lot like that big box department store skateboard box. But I figured my parents, being the clever hounds they were, had maybe switched out the skateboards or something like this. And so I waited patiently until my dad in his little Santa Claus hat brought that gift, placed it on my lap, and I tore off the wrapping paper and imagined my surprise when it was the generic $20 big box skateboard. You laugh. It's not funny. I, I, I think I need to go to counseling because I, I can still feel the pangs of disappointment as I tried to paste a smile on my face and utter out a weak thank you to my parents. But a lot of times when we have certain expectations and they're not met, you can have the kind of disappointment I had, you can have frustration and confusion. So I thought it would be good today to talk about expectations. I'm going to begin a series in the book of Colossians in August. I get to preach here once in July. The next two weeks, we're taking, uh, the church has given me to kind of just get to know people in the church, get the office set up, get things in order so that I can give my energy fully to the task at hand when August comes. So I have one Sunday here to preach in July, and I thought, let's talk about expectations. And what happens is I have expectations about what I should be as a pastor. You each individually all have different expectations of what I should be as a pastor. And over the next months and years and by God's grace decades, there will be, uh, there will be times when our expectations didn't add up. And the solution for that is not just for me to lay down the law and say, okay, here's what you need to expect of me, here's what I'm going to do. But actually, for all of us together... To submit before God's word. And say, what does God expect a pastor to be? What does God expect of me and you as we relate to one another? And so that's what I'd like to do today. Is just look at one passage from God's word and draw out four truths. About me, about what I'm going to be as a pastor. But not based on my ideas, but based on what God has of his expectations now, there was a pastor uh, back in the Bible times named Timothy. He was a pastor in a town called Ephesus, and he was mentored by the great apostle Paul. And Paul wrote him a letter that, was, that God used. He, he inspired it. He, he made it his words, God's words to Timothy. And so that's what we're going to look at. So if you'd open up to 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you, have, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we put some in the pews in front of you, and you can open that one and turn to page 840. 840. I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. And because God did inspire this, this is God's voice, let's just show reverence to him as a church as we stand to hear his voice. So let's stand together to hear him speak. First Timothy four, eleven to sixteen. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, in and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to preaching, 
and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You can be seated as we pray. God, together, I as a pastor, we as the church, kneel down before your word and say, God, help us to, help us to submit to what your expectations are and to allow our expectations to match yours that you might be honored in this church, that Christ might be exalted. Help us now, in Christ's name. Amen. So, the first truth I want to draw out about myself as your pastor, from this passage, is that I have a clear job description. And it's from God. I have a clear job description from God. What I want you to do is just take a minute to look down again. I just read verses 11 through 16. Look down again and see if you can pick out. Don't shout it out. Uh, Just tuck it away in your own mind. But see if you can pick out what my job description is from 4, 11 through 16. I'll give you a minute. Look down. I don't know what you came up with. I think it's pretty clear because Paul repeats himself over and over on two different themes. The first thing that he emphasizes is that I am to teach the Word of God. So he starts right out. He's just talked about some, some, uh, some of the types of doctrine he's supposed to be teaching. And then he picks up in verse 11 and says, Command and teach these things. Teach the Word. Then verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching, all one sentence teach the word, and then, verse 16, watch your life, and doctrine, closely, teach the word. Three times, teach the word. And then the other thing he says is, live the word. Teach the word and live it out. That again, he says, three times. There it is in verse 12, right at the outset. Don't let anyone look down on you because, of your young, but because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in love, in faith, and in purity live the word or verse 15 be diligent in these matters give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress growth in godliness living the word and then verse 16 watch your life and doctrine closely so teach the word Live the word. Teach sound doctrine. Defend the truth of God's word. Expound upon it. 
and set an example in how you live your life that shows that this truth has the power it claims because it's transforming your life. That is my job description. It's summarized so beautifully there in verse 16. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. But look at the stakes. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. God says to Timothy and then to all pastors, this is your task and eternity hangs in the balance. He says, Timothy or James, it's just a matter of life and death. That's all. Give yourself to teaching the word of God, the word that has power to give us hope, transform our hearts, renew us, change us, transform us. The word that the spirit uses, give yourself to that, both in how you live and how you teach, because it's a matter of life and death. Now, a little advice, if God tells you to do something, I recommend you do it. But especially if God tells you to do it and then tells you and eternity hangs in the balance. By God's grace, with your encouragement and your prayers, that's what I hope to do as your pastor. That's not to say there, aren't anything else in the, there isn't anything else in the Bible that gives advice about what pastors should do. Or that, you know, but, but that's the core of it, to teach the word and to live the word. Now, what that means is that there will be times that you don't like what I say. There'll be times when what I say, and and it's inevitable, there's going to come a time as I'm preaching through this, that preaching through the Bible, that I'm going to say something that doesn't sit right with you. You know, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't say, James, your job is to encourage people, make people feel good about themselves, and affirm what they already believe. That's not my charge. So there's going to come a time when what I say may even offend you. So I want to just say a couple things at the outset about that. Number one is I am going to discipline myself to to, to stay to what the Bible says such that when you hear a sermon that I preach, you can look at the passage that I was preaching from and read it and say, the gist of what James was saying is exactly what's said here. I can read the passage and it makes sense so that I know that it's not James' authority and James' voice, but rather it is God's authority and God's voice. I don't want you followers of me. That would be a bad thing for you and a worse thing for me. That's not what I want. I want you followers of Christ. I want myself to be a follower of Christ. And we do that as we together look to God's word. So that is my commitment. I'm going to preach regularly through whole books of the Bible. Now you might have heard of that. That might be a foreign thing to you. I know Pastor Paul did a little bit of that. But that's my commitment. Why? Not because I'm not very creative and can't come up with something good to preach on. And so, hey, I'll just default to that. Not because, uh, you know, um, I I think I should be writing commentaries and so I'm going to write commentaries for sermons. Not at all. It's because I don't want to be setting the agenda for this church. And if I have to choose what topics I think need to be spoken on, 
inevitably, I'm going to be preaching my hobby horse, preaching what's important to me, preaching my personality. I'm going to produce a bunch of clones of James. People who are like me and connect with me are going to stay, and people who don't are going to leave, right? That'd be bad. Rather, I'm going to choose a book of the Bible. I'm going to preach it faithfully until we're done with it. So that you can tell what I'm doing is coming right from God's word. But, nonetheless, as I do that, there will probably come a time when you disagree with what I say. And what I ask you to do at that point is to stop, look back at the passage, and ask yourself, am I disagreeing with James or am I disagreeing with God? If as you read the passage, you realize, I think I might be disagreeing with God, then prepare yourself even now prayerfully to when that point comes, when that moment arrives, to submit your own ideas and your own beliefs, even if they be long-held, cherished beliefs, to the Word of God. Now, on the other hand, I might not get it right on occasion. I'm a, I'm a fallen man just like you, right? So there'll be times when I don't get it exactly right, or I, I, I might... You might read the passage and say, that, that doesn't seem to be what's being said. If that happens, just come have a visit with me and say, hey, James, I was looking at the passage and it seems to be saying different, something different than what you're saying. I don't bite. I'm not going to glare at you and hunker down in depression that you didn't like my sermon. Now, of course, you could do it in a way that was really rude and bombastic. I trust that you won't do that. But actually, throughout my time in ministry, people coming and engaging over the text of the sermon that I just preached is one of the most encouraging things to me as a pastor. To be able to have a conversation with you where you say, hey, James, I saw this and this, but I didn't see this. Help me understand that, or, or I want you to help you understand this. I guarantee if you do that with a charitable heart, we're both going to grow from it. I'll be edified, and you will be. All right. So I have a clear job description, right? Teach the word, live the word. There's another truth that, from this passage that I want to draw out uh, that, that will help you with your expectations. The second truth, and it's this. I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to offer you. Now you're wishing you'd known that before you'd voted for me. <laughs> so I'm from Chicago, and Chicago has a reputation for several different things. It has a reputation for really good deep dish pizza. It has a reputation for a Chicago-style hot dog. It has a reputation for corrupt politicians. And it has a reputation for the mob, or the mafia. Al Capone, Valentine's Day Massacre. So let's just do a little uh, made-up mafia story. There's a mafioso named Luigi. And he's uh, scrawny and little... And yet, he's smart enough that wherever he goes, he's got Guido and Lupe on either side of him. Guido is this muscle-bound hulk of a man. His biceps are bigger than most men's thighs. And Lupe has that leathered skin and walks around with a grimace and a scar on the face where you can tell he's been in a street fight more than one and one. He walks into a crowded bar and all he has to say is clear out, and he's got seats for he and his guys. He's playing pool, and he's changing the rules as he goes, but nobody questions it. 
we all know why. It's not because Luigi has any inherent intimidation factor, right? He's got zero of that. But he's smart enough to surround himself with Guido and Lupe. And so his power doesn't come anything from himself. It comes from these two guys who are with him. Now, I'm not endorsing the mafia by the illustration, nor am I trying to link myself with the mob. But I understand as a pastor that I'm like Luigi. You put me in a ballroom brawl and I'm nothing, right? I don't have anything to bring to the table except that I believe this is God's word. And I believe God has spoken. The almighty creator of the universe. His voice can be heard here. And his spirit who is active today uses this word to transform our lives. Look with me at 2 Timothy. Just one book over. There's 1 Timothy. There's another letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And I just want to, I want you to hear this. And here with this idea of the Luigi and the, and the Guido. Uh, listen to this and, and, and how Paul and, and his writing Timothy realize they don't have anything of themselves, but it's all about the power of the gospel, the power of God at work through his gospel message. So I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 8 through 14. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Or Paul says, ashamed of me as prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And this gospel, and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am, yet I'm not ashamed. Because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. What you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now, I could say so much about this passage, but I won't. All I'll say is notice that there is this message that's transformed Paul, and that he says, now this message that's been entrusted to me, I entrust to you to guard, even though it's God who's guarding it. And then look at chapter 2, verse 2. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So Paul has a message entrusted to him that God is the one one guarding, but it's a powerful message. And Paul then entrusted to Timothy, and Timothy's entrusted to other faithful men. The idea here is that the message of the gospel has power, and it's something that is outside of Timothy. It's something that's been entrusted to him. It's something that's been entrusted to me. I don't have anything to offer except the powerful word of God. If you come expecting 
golden voice soaring revivalistic rhetoric or hipster sarcasm and wit, you'll be disappointed. I don't have a backup option in stand-up comedy. I don't have a backup plan in motivational speaking. You know, if you're coming expecting a suave delivery like Barack Obama could give you, or, or a, winsome, uh, a winsome style like Jennifer Lawrence, or an entertainer like Mark Lowry, or, or a uh, cutting-edge delivery like Stephen Furtick, I'm going to let you down. It's not what I can offer. I don't have anything to offer. And if I start to try and be that, I'll distract from where the real power is. My power is only that I realize I'm scrawny. I lose the barroom fight. But I got the gospel. I'm flanked by the power of God and his word. If you come to church weary from this world, a broken world, where you have a lot of questions and a lot heavy on your heart. And you realize that the one thing you need is not another man's slick speech, but the word of God. If you come here hungry to hear what God has to say, I pray by God's grace, you will not walk away without being fed. And I believe that this word cuts to the very heart. It exposes us to the very points of our joints and our marrow. And if you're here each week hearing God's word, even though I haven't chosen a topic on how to survive divorce, or how to get through your financial troubles, or how to raise a happy family, or how to deal with conflict, even though I'm not preaching on some slick topic like that, that... God's word is powerful and you will hear the voice of Almighty God and you walk away knowing that God has spoken and over time you will get exactly what God knows you need to feed you and to help you walk in this wearisome world. So, my job, preach the word and live the word. I have nothing to offer Accept the word. And let's look at a third point. I am no different than you. I'll let you in a little secret. If you come over to my house, you won't find a little red phone that I can pick up and have direct line to God. Not any more than you, through prayer, right? If you swear around me, God doesn't hear it any less or any more than if you swear alone in your basement. It's not any worse to come and punch me in the face than it is to go and punch anyone else in the face. I'm just a Christian like the rest of us are Christians. Look what it says there in verse 15. Or 14, I mean. Back in, back in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. Do not neglect your gift. Paul refers to this job that Timothy has as a pastor as a gift. 
And those of you who know your Bibles well know that there are actually four different passages that list different gifts. There's over 20 different gifts listed in the Bible. And those gifts are, um, are, every time they're listed, it talks about how these are gifts that all believers have. We are all given gifts. And so, Timothy has a gift. Look just a little bit before in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, where, um, where Paul's telling him what the qualifications of, a, uh, of an overseer should be. And I want you to listen to what an overseer is supposed to be. And what I want you to listen for is how unremarkable this list is. Okay? It, they're great things, but they're things that everybody should be doing. So, listen, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and fall into the devil's trap. Look, these aren't things that only pastors are supposed to do. It's not okay for you to be a drunkard and have two wives. These are things that are just the common traits of everything. The only thing that stands out on this list that might be that is distinctive for a pastor is able to teach. Teaching is one of those 20 plus gifts listed in gift lists. And for Timothy himself, he was given the gift of a pastor teacher when, when the elders came and prophetically laid their hands on him and ordained him to gospel ministry. But the idea here, uh, some, some people think of a church as kind of like a, there's a hierarchy. You know, so you got the senior pastor, and then you got the elders, and then you got the other pastors, and then you got the deacons, and then you got the congregation, and then you have the youth pastor, right? <laughs> um, that's not at all the picture the Bible paints. The Bible paints that we are all one body. With one head, Jesus Christ. We are individually members one of another. We're all equal. Looking to our head, Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean that church is a democracy. Quite the opposite. It's a top-down monarchy. But the top is not a man. Well... Holy God, holy man, the top is Jesus Christ. And so we together, me and you together, as one body, equal body, each given gifts, are to do ministry, and we are together to look to God's word for agenda, and we're to serve one another with the gifts that we have been given, doing ministry to one another, speaking truth in love to one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs to one another. We together are one body following our head Christ. And so our church, because we want to follow Christ, because we, want, we know he speaks through his word, he leads his church through his word, we find the person who, has, who is best gifted to understand the word and teach the word 
and we vote him in as the senior pastor and say, we're going to pay your salary so that you don't have to have another job, so you can give all your time to studying God's word and knowing what he has said so that we together can follow our head. And that's why I'm here. It's not because I'm here to be the boss or the big shot. I'm no different than you. Doesn't that sound nice? We're all one body. We all have gifts. Kumbaya, let's join our hands around this fire, right? Except, at least in the United States, when we put it into practice, there's actually, it's not as, it's not as happy for people when we put it into practice. Because, at least in the United States, there's this big thing called consumerism. And at least in my experience, many people approach church like a restaurant. I'm hungry, and so what do I want to eat? Let's say, okay, our kids need to have food, there's a little playland. We'll go to McDonald's, right? Or we'll go to Swiss Chalet. They have those little, we've discovered these Canadian, uh, what are they called, the Kinder Eggs? Phenomenal. So, they give them out at Swiss Chalet with a children's meal, right? So, you go there, and you have certain expectations. And uh, you go, you sit down, you're hungry, you want to be fed, it's a legitimate need, and you expect them to meet your need. You expect the waiter to be attentive to your table to make sure your water glass doesn't go empty, that food's brought out accurately as you ordered in a prompt way, you expect the kitchen to prepare it well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if they do a good job, you're going to keep coming back. And you'll leave a big tip, and you'll give them your money. The hired guns, the professionals are going to do the work that you're expecting them to do. And if they don't do a good job, maybe you leave a smaller tip and you don't come back and you don't return with your business and you find the next restaurant down the street and go there. That's how so many Americans think about church. There's the hired guns, the pastoral staff, the paid guys. And when the offering plate goes by, if they're doing a good job, I might put a little bit more in. If I feel like I'm getting fed and getting what I want and getting what I need. If, there's, if, if they're not, if they're not doing what I expect, maybe my giving goes down a little bit and eventually I'll take my business elsewhere. But the picture in the Bible is not of a restaurant. That picture I described is of a potluck meal. There's a totally different attitude at a potluck meal. Everybody, or not everybody, but many of the people, when I was a college student, I didn't ever bring anything good to a potluck meal. But... Um, Many of the people in the church take time and say, okay, what is it that I make well? What is it something that I think I can make and other people will enjoy and benefit from? And so they put time and energy. Karen does a great job of this, is putting together something that, that's going to be good for other people. She doesn't just, you know, there's, there's days when we have to just run by Kentucky Fried Chicken. But in general, if she has the time, she's able to put something nice together and bring it to the potluck meal. And you come, and the spirit in the potluck meal is not like... <clears throat> Miss Susie's peas are not very good. Oh, my. There's a charitable attitude. There's a family feel where we're all enjoying this food together. And, yeah, there's some food I don't enjoy as much, but I'll take a little bit more of the stuff I do. And the people who aren't able to prepare a dish because they've had a lot going on that week come, and there's never any... I've never been to a potluck where the food ran out. There's always plenty. And that's the picture of the church that God paints in the Scriptures. All of us have gifts. All of us come together to minister to one another, and I am here to lead from the Word so that you are equipped to do the work of ministry yourselves. I with you, alongside you. So, I am just like you. That means 
or I want to say, five, 500 years ago, there was uh, a great revival in the Christian church. And uh, it was called the Reformation because this revival brought about reforming the church around God's word. One of the things that had happened is there had been this uh, sharp distinction between the laity and the clergy. And they'd wear these fancy, ornate gowns and these big head things. And they'd speak in other languages that the people didn't even understand. And they would have these long titles that would go with them. And when they reformed things around God's word, one of their goals, among many others, was to abolish that distinction. And they took radical steps to try and abolish the distinction between clergy and laity based on these biblical principles. I share that same passion. It is just a little aside, but people have asked what they should call me. I prefer to be called by James, not Pastor, not Pastor James. Um, if you're figuring out what to call your kids, or what your kids should call me, if you're figuring out what to call your kids, you got my problem. I get their names all wrong. <laughs> but if you're trying to figure out what your kids should call me, whatever they call another adult, Mr. James, Mr. Seward, James, whatever you prefer. I say that because, you know, I don't, I don't call, um, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't call John McIntyre Deacon John or Deacon, right? I don't call Judy Loveless Hostess Judy. We don't, we don't, we don't do that with anybody else where we label them by their gifting. Now, I'm not high strung about it. Uh, I'm not going to, like, look down my nose at you if you call me Pastor or Pastor James. And I know that um, biblically it's right to respect and show respect and deference to those whom God has placed in authority over us. And for some people to use the word pastor, that's a way of doing that. And if it would violate your conscience not to call me pastor, I'm not asking you to violate your conscience. It's not something I'm going to harp on. But I say that because of the spirit of what I'm getting after here. We can't ever think that I'm the professional who's uniquely gifted to make hospital visits, uniquely visited to counsel from God's word, uniquely visited or uh, gifted to uh, organize an event, uniquely gifted to be at everything that the church is offering, whatever else, you know. And if that's what your expectation is, you have a restaurant mentality that, that you're going to be disappointed because that's not what God's called me to be. He's called me to use the gift that he's given me just as much as he's called you to use the gift he's given you. So let's look at the fourth, the fourth point from this passage as it relates to expectations. The fourth accurate expectation I want you to have is that I will mess up. I don't say it tritely. I've messed up in the ten years of ministry that God's given me already. And those are some of the things that are saddest to me, that are most frustrating to me, because my mistakes affect people. I don't try to mess up. I try and do things the right way. I prayerfully uh, approach things. I try and think things through. But as a fellow sinner, a fellow person who's broken and needs the gospel of Jesus Christ just as much as you, I will mess up. I remember when I was uh, in college, 
and I was an intern at the church. The, the man who preached uh, last week was John Dennis, and I was at his church, and the other pastor was David Helm, and uh, he was great at training, and uh, I was an a intern at that church, and I'm sitting in this little corner booth at the Medici on the south side of Chicago, and Dave Helm was just giving kind of advice to us as, as interns who are thinking of pastoral ministry. And uh, he was asked a question about, um, you know, how do you deal with when you mess up or things like this. And he had us open up our Bibles and look at chapter 1 Timothy 4, verse 15, which is the passage what you're, that we're in. And he read this, be diligent in these matters, give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. And he said, James, or actually, I don't think he was speaking to me, whoever the other guy was, I don't remember. He said, the pastor's job is not to be perfect. The pastor's job is to be growing in conformity to Christ. So when he messes up, he says, I think it's good if I preach on a passage and then 10 years later I preach on it again and I preach it differently because I've grown as a pastor. And by God's grace, you will see my progress, which means that I will do things that I wish I hadn't done. I'll make errors in judgment. I'll chart a wrong course. I'll speak too quickly. And in those moments, I will need you to extend to me grace and love and forgiveness. I'll need you, through it all, to be patient with me, to pray for me. And by God's grace, you will be able to see my progress. So that if by God's grace I'm here in a decade, you can look at me and say, I see he's a better father than when he came to this church. I see that he's a better preacher than when he came to this church. I see that he's a better husband than when he came to this church. I see that he's a better shepherd when he came to this church. This church, from the pastor all the way throughout, every one of us is a broken sinner who needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because we're people who've been transformed by that gospel, when you do something against me or I do something against you, we, like our Savior, can be loving and gracious with one another. And I pray that you will be able to see that with me. Now as I finish these four, four points, you might be feeling a little bit like I did when I opened up that skateboard and saying, whoa, I didn't know I was getting a pastor who doesn't have anything to offer and who's a mess and... There's more to the story. My parents were pulling a prank on me. And uh, we opened our stockings last, and in my stocking was a little card that I got to open, and it said, you can return the big box generic skateboard and go to the skate shack and get your California designer skateboard. Ah, isn't that sweet? <laughs> I, I hope that by laying out expectations up front, 
we'll be, able to, we'll be able to experience the joy of seeing, okay, these are God's expectations, and as we grow together, we're seeing those expectations met. And that's a joyous, happy thing for me to be a pastoring here for you, despite all these things that can be hard. I hope that you have a clear set of what to expect from me, from God's Word. I hope that you expect me to teach and live the Word. I hope that you expect me to bring nothing to the table except for God's Word. I hope that you expect me to be a Christian just like the rest of us, ministering, not, uh, ministering alongside you, not doing ministry for you. And I hope that you get to see my progress as God works on me and grows me as a man of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word which speaks so clearly into every situation, even to a situation like this of me standing before this church giving the first sermon. And I pray that these truths would mark my ministry and our ministry together here at Maple Avenue. In Christ's name, amen.